So this morning we're going to look at the triumphal entry. This is one of the few events that is in all four of the Gospels. And there is a lot of cultural and messianic significance within this event. And so hopefully you have your theologian caps on this morning. We're going to do a bit of a, a biblical theology study. So we're going to look through scripture and see what is looking forward to this event and what comes out of this event and how, how it helps us to understand its placement in the realm of redemptive history. The first thing we have to remember from where we find ourselves in John is that we're coming up on the, the Passover feast. And in the Passover feast, if you remember what's celebrated in Passover is their deliverance from slavery, their deliverance from Egypt. God bringing them out of bondage by the blood of a lamb being delivered from their oppression. So when they came to celebrate, this is always a reminder for them. And of course, it was on the forefront of every Jew's mind that they were under oppression from Rome right now. Whenever they think of Passover, whenever they think of a leader, whenever they think of salvation, deliverance, it would be associated with those who are oppressing them. Egypt and now Rome. And so this celebration is a reminder of what God can do and hoping of what God will do. But as we'll typically see, the Jews are always thinking temporally. They're always thinking in the here and now. They're, they're always wanting a king now, deliverance now, and salvation for them purely meant being delivered from Rome. And one of the things someone brought up to me this week was that for most of us who grew up in church or been to church, especially around the Easter season, Palm Sunday is always the Sunday that precedes Easter. But a lot of times the, this, this cute kind of festive environment where kids are marching with, with palm branches and they're, they're singing, it's something that we've grown up doing, but do we really understand the significance? Why palm branches? Why the celebration? Why is this important? And hopefully we're going to get to that this morning. And spoiler alert, it's more amazing than anything you probably have imagined. So what we're going to do, I'm going to jump right into our text. Then I'm going to look at some historical prophecies that are leading up to this. And then we're going to walk back through the text. So again, hopefully have your, uh, your, your Bibles ready. And uh, we're going to look at a lot of passages you may not necessarily read, but will really help you in understanding the significance of this. So we're in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, our king is coming and sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world is going after him. Several things I want to mention here. One. This is unique in that this is the only time that Jesus allows attention to himself. Up until this point, Jesus has said, no, it is not my time. I am not going to be your king. After he fed the 5,000, they wanted him to become king. 
They, 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 they wanted him to declare it openly. This is the first time he actually allows it and even initiates it. He sends his disciples to prepare the, the donkey that he's to ride on. And now it is his time. Up until this point, the Pharisees have not been able to deliver him over. They've tried very often to arrest him and to kill him. No one else determines Jesus' time, only he does. The external circumstances do not determine the hour that the Father has prepared beforehand. And it's amazing that he does this all without a word. I'm going to get into the scene a little bit in a moment, but there's this great atmosphere of celebration and rejoicing, and Jesus does not say a word. Now, any power-hungry king, dictator, you know, third-world despot, everyone's shouting their name. The first thing they want to do is they want to make a speech. They want to tell everyone how great they are. They want to tell everyone why this is appropriate that you should be celebrating me. But every detail here is important and helps you understand who he is and and, and why he's come. Because he doesn't need to tell them about his glory. It will very soon be obvious of what the Lord is doing, and one day it will be fully obvious to, to everyone. The other thing, too, is this is a voluntary act. Jesus does not have to be dragged to the cross. This is his victory lap to the cross. Jesus is, oh, thank you guys. Um, He is getting ready to lay his life down. And he does it voluntarily. He initiates it. And everyone is there to see it. This is preparation for the, the king's final act on earth. This is preparation for his final entry into this Jerusalem. Just put that in your hat for a moment. That's, a, that's going to be there later. This is his final entry into this Jerusalem. And that's going to come up a lot in this. And so a natural question is, okay, why does this happen this way? We know all of the facts of this. Why does this happen? This happens, short answer, is to fulfill scripture. Because what we have to understand is that the word in writing and the word in flesh are always in agreement. The word in writing and the word in flesh are always in agreement. And this is going to fulfill scripture perfectly. And so, like I said, this is going to be a little biblical theology class of what does the Bible say about this event? And so I want to look at a couple uh, prophecies that kind of create this anticipation. Why is so? Because if we don't understand the culture, if we don't understand the Jewish scriptures, We don't understand why they break in in praise, like why the uh, palm branches and why the donkey and all this stuff. So first, we're going to go way back to the beginning. Uh, Go to Genesis chapter 49. So in Genesis 49, if you don't know what's going on here, there was a custom in the ancient Near East where when a father died on his deathbed, he would give his inheritance to each of his sons. And so Jacob has 12. And then we've got... um, Joseph's son, so he adopts them as well. So he's going to go through the list of the sons and what they receive. I'm not going to read all of them, but we're going to read Judah's. Now, Judah's is covered in 8 through 12. I'm just going to read 10 and 11. Why this is important is that Judah is not the firstborn. Judah should not have the, the greatest of the inheritances, but he does. And this is important because if you understand what happens, Judah is the seat of the king. Judah is the royal family. To be a king of Israel, you must come from the line of Judah. And here's where we get that from. Genesis 49, starting in verse 10. The scepter 
This is a royal instrument. This shows who has the power. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah will become the house of David. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. When a king would sit on the throne, he would hold his staff between his feet and everyone would look at this staff that was uh, an emblem of his might and it would be sitting between his feet when they would uh, address him. Until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now this is, this is important. In the first book of the Bible, we get a foreshadowing of him being the king of the peoples, plural. In those days, God's people was with the people of Israel, one nation. And so this is foreshadowing that he will be the king of all peoples. Don't miss that detail. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, there's so much symbolism within this section, and I don't want to get into a whole lot of it. But what you need to understand, and we're going to talk about this more, but a donkey is is um, an animal of, of peace. And it shows that, all right, there's no aggression here. There's, the, there's, there's no war. And vine, whenever you read vine or wine or, or grapes, it is typically language of abundance, fruitfulness. So when the donkey is, is, is tied to the vine, it is fruitfulness and it is peace. So this is going to be marks and characteristics of this, this kingdom. And the donkey's colt, so the, the colt would have been the young donkey that had not been, been ridden yet that was, that was pure will be tied to the choice vine. The pure one will be tied to the choice vine. Skip forward, John chapter 15, who's the choice vine? Jesus is usually the Sunday school answer. Jesus is the, the, the choice vine. So the, the pure one will be tied to Jesus. And so these animals that are beasts of burden, that are animals of peace, are connected to this kingdom, are connected to this choice vine. And it goes on to say, he was washed in the garments of wine. This means there is so much wine, there is so much abundance that his very clothes are, are, are drenched in wine. This is how rich his kingdom is. And his vestures in the blood of grapes. So, We've got a kingly line through Judah, a scepter that will never depart, animals of peace attached with abundance. And this is in the third generation of Israel now, you know, looking forward uh, 2,000 years or so. Then we're going to fast forward a little bit to the the more tricky of the two uh, in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's the first book of the minor prophets. Pass over the major prophets right after Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. So while the passage in Genesis was more about the kingly line and the characteristics of of that that kingdom, um, this passage in Daniel is more about the redemptive nature of something that is to come. Now, if you don't know what's going on in Daniel, it helps to have the context of what's going on here. Daniel is one of the few faithful Israelites who is in, uh, in, in Babylon where they have been captured, they've been enslaved. And Daniel, right before this, is crying out for mercy to God. He is pleading on behalf of the people, be merciful on us. He is interceding for the people. And an angel of the Lord comes to him and gives him this vision. And this is his answer to, to mercy for the people, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people. Now, real quick, whenever you see 
numbers related to prophecy, this is where people start to go off the rails. And they, they, they get their little prophetic calculators out and they're all over the place. Uh, but it literally in the Hebrew, this is 77s. If you know anything about Hebrew numerology, the number seven is, is, is perfection. Anytime you add a 10 to something, it, it um, expands its, its influence. So 77s is the, the perfect span of time. Uh, and, and I won't go into all the calculations here. They're fascinating and boring at the same time. Uh, but some people have made a case that weeks could also be read as years. 77s, if you read them as years... Uh, there is a very compelling case that it actually brings it to the very year that Jesus enters into Jerusalem. 490 years from the time that the edict went out to rebuild Jerusalem. So that's about as much as I want to say on that. But there's some theological and redemptive themes here. We're going to keep, we're going to keep reading. 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Listen to the things that are decreed all attached to one event. And think about what one event would encompass all of these things. And your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Only one event in all of history is going to atone for sin is going to make a people for God, is going to anoint a holy place and put the end to prophecy. The fulfillment of all prophecy. One event. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. This is where the numbers get kind of hazy because there were several different edicts uh, to repair Jerusalem and to the coming of an anointed one. We know this word to be Messiah. A prince, there shall be seven weeks. Again, many different ways to read this, but I just want to get the spiritual significance more than the, 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 chrono, the chronology. For 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So there was a time when the temple would be rebuilt and it was troubled, but it would not last. And after 62 weeks, listen to this, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So you've got looking forward to one event that will tie together the payment for iniquity, the holy things of God, and the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. should automatically bring your mind to that anointed one. The one who's going to accomplish all this will also be cut off and have nothing for a moment. Will die so that sin and death might die with him. And we know that that won't last. So anytime you read... Um, Old Testament prophecy especially. Be careful about trying to allegorize it, meaning trying to tie one specific event to every detail and trying to make sense of everything. These prophets are receiving this hundreds of years before and trying to the, the best they can put it into, uh, into, in, into words. Uh, and so, but it's also only partial as well. We're not going to get a full revelation. Uh, so we've got the the kingly nature, we've got the redemptive nature, and then we're going to kind of pull this together in Zechariah chapter 9. This is the direct reference in, uh, in verse 15 of our text. But Zechariah is this great book that talks about Israel and the bad shepherds of Israel and the good shepherd of Israel and the day of the Lord. And Zechariah has all of this rich imagery. 
So we're gonna, we find ourselves in Zechariah chapter 9. Let me tell you what's going on before that. So after talking about everything that's going wrong with Israel, Zechariah receives this prophecy of the, the coming peace and prosperity in Zion. Like in verse 2, it says, I am zealous for Zion. We'll get to Zion in a minute. With great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. And he closes at chapter 8, verse 8. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. This is um, messianic language. This is prophetic language looking forward to a day when, when God will redeem his people, true Israel, and the, the nature of that redemption. So chapter 9 talks about Israel's enemies and what God's going to do to them. But look at what he says to his people, starting in verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. We're going to talk about Zion in a minute, but that's one of those words that we don't really understand. So I want to get in there a little bit later. But if you see here, there's a direct correlation between a daughter of Zion and a daughter of Jerusalem. It's essentially the same thing. We'll get into more of that later. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt and a foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river uh, to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So much there, the the, the length and breadth of the the kingdom, the redeeming nature of of this, this coming king to the daughters of Zion. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against you, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So this is quoted for Jesus' first procession coming into Jerusalem. Now we're going to see something that is emblematic of his second procession where he comes with the heavenly Jerusalem. Beginning with then in verse 14. So very often when you're reading prophecy, then does not mean This happens, and then five minutes later, this happens. Then can just mean this happens, and then this happens at some point in the future. Then the Lord will appear over them. Listen to the language here. Tell me what what images this brings to mind. And his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and he will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread over the sling, excuse me, tread down the sling stones and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar altar. On that day, the Lord, their God will save them as a flock of his people for like the jewel of a crown. They shall shine on the land for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. So this is the beginning of the end, the first part of, of this of this reading. This is the, the, the coming of the king, the entering into Jerusalem. And the second part of this is the finality of all things. The first is the, the, the beginning of the end. The, the first coming assures the second. Because of the first, we know that the second is, is coming. And we get this kind of new creation restoration language where wine is going to abound. So now we see the the prophecies from from Genesis being expanded. 
And it really kind of spans the first coming of a king and then the second coming of a king, which, again, we're going to get to more later. So I kind of want to set the stage, and I could have went so many more. Uh, that's where I'm going to stop. But I, I want to pray before we get to our, our message, and then we're going to walk back through this text, spending most of our time on verses 13 through 15. Let's pray. Lord, I pray we don't miss the significance of these texts like many of the Israelites did. I pray that we would be students of your word, that we would seek you within its pages. We would recognize the Holy Spirit's work in inspired men to to speak to us. That we would see you, the gospel, on every page of scripture. That we would see it all pointing to you and find its crescendo in Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray that your name would be proclaimed. That our king would be lifted up. He would be exalted. And our thoughts and our deeds. And we would not see this as some ceremony, purely some ceremonial event. But the greatness of the coming king that it is. Pray that your spirit that inspired these words would teach us and correct us and rebuke us and direct us according to them. For the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, so back in John. These are some of the prophecies that if you're paying attention, and if you're looking for the Messiah, and if you're a student of the Hebrew Scriptures, you would have been prepared for. So now we get to the setting. Verse 12. The next day... We saw last week that we're six days before the, the uh, Passover. Now we're five days before the, the Passover. People are coming into Jerusalem uh, to prepare for the feast. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the buzz is here. The anticipation is, is here. This is a big event and word is, is spreading. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now, living in Florida, that doesn't mean much to us. You guys will find this funny, but as, I, as I'm reading commentaries, people have to, commentaries have to explain what a palm tree is. Well, this is what a palm tree looks like, because most people around the world do not have palm trees. They don't know what they look like. We have them everywhere. Uh, and so a lot of times, because we're almost immune to them, we miss the significance. And so I want to get into some of the symbolism with palm trees. Because of their, their, their tall and stately nature, they were connected with, with royalty. They had this regal stature to them. Uh, they had this appearance of strength and might. Anything tall was, was seen to be powerful. And even at the ends of the uh, palm fronds, it looks like the, the uh, points on a crown. This is a, a very regal tree. It's also highly symbolic, and we see it throughout Scripture. But it's also important to these people because the palm tree can survive in the most dry of climates. This is one of the few things that will flourish in a desert. When everything else is dead, the palm tree with its, its deep roots will still be green and have vibrant life in it. Which is a picture of the Israelites who spent most of their, their time in the wilderness. Even in the wilderness, the, the palm still has life. And there's a picture in uh, Psalm 92, verse 12, if you want to look at it later of the, the, the righteous being compared to a mighty palm. And so this picture is associated with all things righteous, but it's also associated with celebration. 
If you look at the design for the first temple, the second temple, and as Ezekiel looks at a future eschatological temple, the the palm uh, image was used in each one of those. Every step of the way, the, the, the palm was a part of temple construction and artwork. Uh, we also see in Revelation chapter 9 that the, the palm is what is held in the hands around the worship at the throne. When all of the, the, the nations are coming before the, the throne of God, they are waving palm branches. This is a consistent theme throughout scripture of worship and adoration and, and, and might and royalty. So these aren't just branches. And yes, there were, there were, there's plenty of them in Jerusalem. But there are significances of, of why these were mentioned uh, specifically. This is celebration and nat- uh, national victory. And we're going to get into these words here. And they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 118. So turn there with me. Psalm 118. I mentioned this before in our corporate prayer before service, that these halal psalms, these praise psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, were sung at the festivals. This is the culmination of them all. Psalm 118 begins with the words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And closes with those same words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. But I want you to see some of the details here. Now, most Israelites, even if they were illiterate, would have memorized these liturgical songs and many of these the, the popular narratives. So when you start singing words of a psalm, that entire psalm would have come to mind. Starting in verse 22, listen to these words, and most of us should be familiar with this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. These are words in a worship song. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter and Hebrews both tell us that that stone is Christ. The cornerstone that you built everything else off of was rejected by the builders, the ones who considered themselves the builders of Israel. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And stop there for a moment. We love this saying. Many of us who have been in, in churches for a long time will say this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is true. Every time we wake up, we can say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But that's not what this means. That is also true. But what this means is this day, the day that this cornerstone comes, that's what we rejoice in. This day, the king is coming. That's what we rejoice in. This is the day that the Lord has made. The Lord has made a day for our king to come and die for our sins so we can be reconciled to God. Let us rejoice in that. That's the day that is being referred to here. How do we know? Because they cry out, save us. Hosanna. Save now. Immediacy, urgency. Save us, we pray. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. The shouts of Hosanna are save us. Even though they're crying for salvation from Rome. They're always asking too small, but God is doing something greater. It goes on, still quoting here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord God. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice and cords up to the horns of the altar. You 
are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. This is worship. This is what's going on here in John. This is what's going on here in this procession. They are reminded of this, even if they don't know the extent of what they're singing. It is to connect it all. Even the disciples didn't understand, but they would. Hosanna, back in John, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They're still looking for present salvation in Rome, and they're still thinking too small, as most people do. Their God is too small. Their need for salvation is too small. They want to be saved from circumstances. Save me from this difficulty tomorrow. Save me from this person who doesn't like me. Save me from this job that I hate. Save me from this. Save me from that. Jesus came because you're dead and you need to be saved from yourself. The salvation he would accomplish is so much greater than anything that they could have hoped or prayed for. And I want you to see these three terms here give us the complete picture of Jesus at this moment. Hosanna, Savior, the one coming in the name of the Lord, Messiah, and the King of Israel. That is who is riding on the donkey. Savior, Messiah, King. That is who Jesus is. Savior, Messiah, King. Even in their imperfection, they are perfectly describing who Jesus is riding in as at that moment. And this is quite the scene here. Again, it's, it's kind of hard to get an understanding of, of what's going on if you're not in that culture. So as we did last week, I want to look at the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We cannot read them all, but I encourage you to. The references will be up on the screen. So if you want to read through those and compare them, and what happens is we get a complete picture, a more full picture of what was going on with the details from each one of them. Uh, like in, in Matthew, you get Jesus directing the disciples. He doesn't find the, the donkey and the colt himself. He directs his disciples to do that. The word meek, the word humble comes in there. Uh, the, 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 the cloaks go on the animals and on the road. We get that in Matthew. And there's added terms to, to, to worship. There's more that they're singing. There's more praises that are going on. Mark adds those same things, but he also adds this interesting line. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Such rich words. It ties together everything we just looked at in the Old Testament. The coming kingdom of the house of Judah. The coming kingdom, the king that would come, the one riding on a donkey. And then Luke. Luke talks about the donkey that no one ever sat on. And then he talks about the, the disciples rejoicing and praising. I do want to pick up in Luke. So Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the road down the, the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. Luke help, helps us understand this scene. Those in Jerusalem heard that he was coming. In just a moment, we're going to see that those who were with him in Bethany, when he rose Lazarus from the dead, they will be coming. So there's a crowd in front of him. There's a crowd following him. And all of, all of his disciples, all those following him, all those learning from him, were rejoicing with a loud voice. This is not some Gregorian chant where people are mumbling under their breath. These are expressive Hebrews who are saying, Hosanna, the king is come. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're making fools of themselves. What does Jesus say? And I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is so important. If you don't speak, the rest of the earth will. The most dead thing here, the stones under your feet, they will cry out if you don't. This is that important. And in this moment of great importance, it's also a moment of great sadness. Verse 41. When he drew near, this triumphal entry is approaching Jerusalem, and saw the city, he wept over it. Wait a second. They're praising him. This is celebration. This is the entry of the victorious king. Why does he weep? Because he knows their hearts. Verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He's riding in on a young donkey. A donkey is an animal of peace. No one goes into war riding on a donkey. You will not win. They've got one speed. They are beasts of burden. If you want war, if you're going to be a conquering king who's, who's a military general, you will ride on a horse. A horse is a show of might and strength. A donkey is a show of peace. Jesus has come riding in as the prince of peace. And he is coming with peace that is reconciliation through his blood. He knows what's about to happen even though they don't. Even though they're celebrating, he knows that they're dead. That he knows the hardness of their hearts. But now they're hidden from your eyes and he weeps. Because this is glorious. The daughters of Zion should be celebrating. But they're blind. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Very soon, we've mentioned this before, 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. This is that description. And tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. How important was this? When you reject Christ and his visitation, it will bring destruction to you and everything you love. This is how important this is. It is joyful, yet it is sad. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus sent his disciples, found a young donkey, and sat on it as it is written. As he's riding a donkey in, this is no threat to Rome. Rome does not care about a guy on a donkey. A guy on a war horse with soldiers behind him, they might be a little worried. So this is a show of peace. He's riding in as um, the, the, the prince of peace. And even when we see in Zechariah, the language of horses is, atta- is attached to war. This procession is one of peace to accomplish reconciliation between man and God. Paul in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, Colossians 1.20 tells us that he made peace through the blood of the cross. That is the only way that peace could be accomplished, is that sins be paid for. This is a mission of peace, but it would cost him his life and to shed his blood. This is a mission of peace. The time for war is coming. We'll get there later. But here he's the prince of peace. One day he will come back as the king of kings. Verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. All right, this is not triumphant for all people. Fear not, daughter of Zion. If you're not of Zion, be very afraid. Zechariah 9.9 tells us this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Be not afraid. It is a cause for rejoicing that your king has come, if he's truly your king. And so who is Zion? I told you I'd get there, and we will. Um, Zion is an actual, yet realized, uh, excuse me, yet idealized reality in the Bible. Meaning, it is something that is, that is tangible, yet it's got an ideal form. It's the ultimate already, not yet. Because as we saw before, Zion is a, uh, a synonym for Jerusalem. But it's not just Jerusalem. Here's what the dictionary of biblical imagery says about this. Zion is a symbol or metaphor for the historical city of Jerusalem. But behind this metaphor lies a complex cluster of interlocking themes of immense theological significance. You can see why I quoted that, and they said it much better than I could. So what do we read? What do we know about Zion? Just in Zechariah chapter 8, we know that Zion is the city of God. Zion is the people of God. Zion is the mountain of God. Zion is God's holiness and true Jerusalem. You get many other images throughout Scripture. But Zion is, it is Jerusalem, yet not just Jerusalem. Uh, many people who try to make a, Jerus- a ultimate Jerusalem in this world are accused of being called Zionists. Because they want Jerusalem to be, Jerusalem in this earth, to be the, the city that it can't be when sin is present. There can only be a true Jerusalem. Zion will only come when there is no more sin. We will get to that a little bit later. So when you talk about daughter of Zion, this happens often in scripture. There's a feminine singular that is applied to the, the, the people of Israel in, in, in the plural. Daughter of Zion. God's people. If you are truly his child, you will fear him. And if you fear him, there's no need to fear. This is good news for you. Um, I love John Newton's words here. So I'm going to quote, it's going to be up on your screen. Uh, He wrote Amazing Grace, but he also wrote Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. A beautiful hymn. I want you to hear this language. It should be up on your screen. John Newton writes this. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou may smile at all thy foes. Savior, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading are the world's best pleasures, all its boasting pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. That is what is being expressed here in those words. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming. Your king is coming. What you've been waiting for, he's coming. He's triumphant and he's victorious. This is a king's welcome. This is the pre-victory parade. Because it is as sure before it happens as when it happens. But again, they want this temporary king, but he is coming for an everlasting reign. And then even the disciples don't understand this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things, that they had been written about him and that they had been done to him. What happens when Jesus is glorified? What does he do next? 
He sends what? Who? Sorry, what? The Holy Spirit. They didn't remember until he was glorified. Jesus told them, and we'll get there in chapter 14 and chapter 16. That it is the Holy Spirit who will give you remembrance of all things. It is the Holy Spirit who will teach you everything that I've, I've taught you. When he sends the Holy Spirit, then there's this aha moment. Oh, now I understand what was written and what was done to him. And this should make those of you who are in our Deuteronomy study make that connection. What do we talk about on Wednesday? The things that God has done and the things that were written about God for the sake of God's people. This is why God's word is important and the retelling of what he's done is important. Because it brings to remembrance all these things because we are frail and we have short-term memories and we, we tend to forget these things. And those who remember what has been written and what is done cannot help to be a witness to it. This would have um, emboldened and excited the disciples. So we go on. The crowd that had been with him with, uh, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. They saw this. They became witnesses of this as it should. So now you've got the, the converging crowds, the crowd from Jerusalem and the crowd from, from Bethany. And if you see the work of the Lord, if you see Christ's work, you will become a witness to it. That's why we are a people who tell. Because when you've seen someone raised from the dead, you can't help but witness to what you've seen. And this repetition of crowds here, we're going to see it again in verse 18. Crowds, crowds, crowds is mentioned three times. Okay, so maybe we think this is some little uh, Jewish gathering. But Josephus, who's uh, an early, uh, he's an early Jewish historian. So kind of paraphrased here. This is, he thinks there's probably around 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for the feast. When you talk about crowds, that's a lot. And so here's how Josephus gets his, his math. At such a time, Jerusalem and the villages around were, were crowded. On one occasion, a census was taken of the lambs slain at the Passover feast. Listen to this. Lambs slain. The number was 256,000 lambs slain. And there had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb. And if that estimate is correct, it means that there must have been as many as 2.7 million people at the Passover feast. Even if this figure is exaggerated, it remains true that the numbers must have been immense. This is a big gathering. These are big crowds. This is a big event. This was not to be missed. And so when you talk about crowds, we're not just talking about a few people here. We're talking about tens of thousands. And this is right in front of them. Verse 18 says, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Isn't this the thing with, with, with crowds? Crowds want to show. They do. The reason they went, oh, we heard this guy's doing amazing things. And so we're going we're gonna to follow him. And amazing things will always attract people, but it never lasts. Because if you're just going to be entertained, then you always have to up the ante. What have you done for me lately? Let's go see another amazing thing, but they fizzle out really quickly. And we must be careful. Don't trust the crowds. Never trust the crowd. I mean, we see it in, in our culture. A mob mentality can have pitchforks and, and torches in, in five minutes. Think about the crowds in Jesus. You, you can't trust them. They followed him to hear his teaching and to see the miracles. But many turned away when his teachings became difficult. John chapter 6, he tells them that the Father draws you. It's the Spirit that gives life. 
And many left because this was difficult. You mean I'm not in control of my own salvation? I'm out of here. They followed him. They're following here. They're shouting Hosanna. But in a matter of a few days, they're going to be shouting crucify him. Don't trust the crowds. And beware of the crowds because human nature always tends toward a mob mentality. We get worked up into emotion. And let's be, let's be rooted in the truth of, of, of Scripture and not what people are shouting at at the moment. But as we move on, verse 19, to see the, result of, or the uh, yeah, result of all this. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that, they are gaining, uh, that, that you are gaining nothing. I like how they start to accuse each other. You are gaining nothing. You see what you're doing? They're, they're kind of gathering together. If you remember at the end of chapter 11, they told anyone, if you know where Jesus is, tell us so we can arrest him. Well, they know where Jesus is, but they're, they're too cowardly to arrest him. All they can do is just stand and pout in the corner, these, these, these haters that are like, look at, what he's, look at what he's doing. Everyone's going after them. A couple things to note here. They say, you are, we're gaining nothing. Isn't this sad and heartbreaking that they see only gain in suppression of Christ? That this is the way of the world. That the exaltation of Christ is a loss to them. Because it means he's king and they're not. They are mourning because they're losing their kingdom. They are mourning because the true king is coming. That means they can't sit on the throne. There's this theme throughout scripture. We saw it in uh, Psalm 2 a few weeks ago. Of turmoil and strife between the the people of the world and the, the rulers of the nation and against the anointed one. They are so angry and gritting their teeth and accusing one another. And they say, look, the world has gone after him. And the irony here is those who are of the world, who represent the world, are accusing the rest of the world of going after him. And we're going to see this is foreshadowing to next week because now the rest of the world, the Greeks are going to be inquiring of, of Jesus. And this one who comes in humbly this week on a donkey Next week, we're going to be looking at his glory, and he's talking about the glory of God. So I want to leave you with one last thing. Uh, let's review what we've learned on our first procession, and then I'm going to tell you about the second one. You may want to write these down. This will be helpful. So his first procession into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy, coming as a prince of peace on an animal of peace to shed his own blood. He's coming in humility, apart from the, the, the glory of heaven. He's coming to defeat death and make propitiation for sin, meaning accomplish redemption. He's not coming to judge, but he's coming to secure salvation and to save that which was lost. This is his procession into the earthly Jerusalem. Having done that, we await his second procession. Turn to Revelation 19. So his first time into Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. His second time coming, he's going to bring heavenly Jerusalem with him. Look at Revelation 19.11. We like to say Jesus, Jesus is um, the, the prince of peace. He is, he's a man of peace. He's lowly, coming on a donkey. All this is true his first time coming. 
But his second time coming, we get a very different picture. Look at this, Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Remember horse, that's battle. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, capital letters, because that's who he is. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. This is the same Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. His first time into Jerusalem, the people are waiting, or waving and rejoicing, laying down palm branches. His next time, the heavenly armies are coming behind him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, a name is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the second procession. When he will come back to bring heavenly Jerusalem down to earth. This is why Jesus was, was weeping. Because most of those people were going to be at the end of his sword. Here's what happens in his second procession. He's on a horse ready for war. He's completing all of prophecy. He's coming not as the prince of peace, but the king of kings and lord of lords, dripped in the blood of the slain wicked. The first time was his blood. Next time is the blood of those who reject him. And he is coming in the fullness of heavenly glory and might. That's what he set, that which he set down his first time in. And he's coming for the final conquering of Satan and death to put it to death forever. He didn't come to judge the first time, but this time he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And salvation will be complete. And those who mocked him as king, put a little placard above his his head on the cross, will fall at the end of his sword. In both of these processions, he is victorious. The first one spiritually headed to the cross. The second one at the finality of all things. So let me just leave you with this. The king is coming. Amen. Hallelujah. The king is coming. Remember what he has done and what is written about him. Believe in him. It is Jesus, the son of God, the Christ. Worship him. Celebrate him. First, he came to make peace with men and God by the blood of the cross. But he is coming again to judge and restore all things. Don't be on the wrong end of his sword.